I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The number this week is two. That's the number of Emmy Awards our esteemed president, Donald J. Trump, has been nominated for. That's the same number of Emmys that HBO's The Wire was nominated for in its entire five-season run. I'm just going to leave that there for a moment. This is the Stream Police. The Stream Police podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Want something more in-depth than a sarcastic, pretentious, 140-character review of your favorite movie? Read long-form reviews of movies, TV, and music from the distant and recent past at OverdueReview.com. So good to talk to you again, my friend. Thank you for checking in with us here on this monthly odyssey through television, movies, and music. It's the Stream Police Podcast coming to you, well, live on tape. From my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio, I'm Clint Davis, the uh, movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. I'll be tossing it up to our friend in Dayton, our man in Dayton. He records in his basement. Uh, our music editor, Andy Sedlak. We'll be talking to him in just a little bit. I know he's going to be mourning the death of Chuck Berry. One of his, I know one of Andy's true idols. The guy loved Chuck Berry. Andy loves him, so I can't wait to hear what he's going to say. I'm sure he's going to pay a good tribute to him a little bit later on. But as I said, I record my part of the show in my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I light up a stogie. And I have to say, this is uh, my wife, Beth, called it the end of an era because this is the last time I'm going to be be recording in this particular closet. We are getting ready to move um, here in just a week after I'm going to be recording this. And in the new house, I've already checked it out. I don't know. What, like, we don't have a closet big enough for me to sit inside. So, like, this closet I'm in is the perfect size for me to come in and record. It's not a walk-in closet size, but it's big enough for me to sit in, and that's it. But there's not a closet big enough to sit in, so I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to be like Jim Morrison when the Doors were recording uh, the L.A. Woman album. I'm going to have to set up a microphone on the toilet and sit in the bathroom and record because that's the best acoustics I'm going to get. So... Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but she said it was the end of an era. So I'm going to go ahead and light my stogie up one last time here in the closet. All right. Smells good in here. The new tenants are going to love it. I'm sure of it. If only they knew what went on in this closet. So, uh, but fear not, we will have another show for you again next month. I'll just have to find a place to record it. I don't know where I'm going to do that. All right, let's uh, let's go ahead and get down to brass tacks, my friend. Uh, 
A lot of issues on the plate, including some emails I'm going to get to in just a bit about a question that I asked last week, and I got a couple uh, very good answers about it. I'm going to ask you guys a question in turn, but let's start the show as we always do with a look back in the annals of TV theme song history with my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And for this week, we're going to go back to a show that is still on the air. It's been on the air since 1969. With 4,384 episodes and counting, can you tell me how to get to Sesame Street? I always say it, you know, it's a good theme song when you hear the first couple notes and you know exactly what the song is. And you can probably complete the lyrics to this one if you spent any time as a child watching this, which if you're basically if you were like under 100 years old, the chances are you probably watched Sesame Street as a kid. That's how long this damn show has been on. And it's hopefully going to be on forever. So this song has been described as a siren song for preschool kids. It's been known to draw them from miles away to sit in front of the television quietly for an hour or more more recently a half hour. But kids are like wandering out of the woods. They're climbing down from trees. They're leaving the football field. They're putting down their baseballs. They're putting down video games. And they're just walking toward the television like zombies to watch Sesame Street. Its lyrics and infectiously upbeat melody suggest this utopia nestled in the heart of an inner city. It's a beautiful idea. It's a great song. The Sesame Street theme is just charming as all hell. Alright, so the kids' voices might be a little bit annoying. I'll give you that. I think they're a little bit too high-pitched, to be honest with you. But the tune itself is brilliant. And it's sweet. Come on. The version that I'm playing here was from season 30... Wrap your mind around that. Season 30 in 1998. They used this theme song from 98 to 2001. It's my favorite of all the versions. Can You Tell Me How to Get to Sesame Street was written by a guy named Joe Raposo, who's a nice Portuguese boy from Massachusetts who was close friends with Frank Sinatra. I'm serious. I mean, I'm not talking about like he was just kind of acquaintances. This guy was tight with the chairman. Raposa was this composer who wrote music for a bunch of kids' shows. He wrote for Sesame Street. He wrote for Shining Time Station. He even wrote songs for The Electric Company, which co-starred America's favorite serial rapist. Here's a little fact about the Sesame Street theme song that I bet you didn't know. During the Iraq War, American soldiers used to blare the Sesame Street theme for hours on end into the holding cells of prisoners in hopes of breaking them down to get them to spill their guts about everything they knew. It was like an interrogation technique. They would blare the Sesame Street theme for hours on end into these poor guys' cells just to get them to talk. Like, it broke them down mentally. Now, Sesame Street itself is one of the true gems of TV history. I mean, the show teaches kids about diversity and community, as well as basic things like math and spelling. The show was huge for me as a Midwestern kid. I watched it for a few years. I wasn't one. I I didn't watch it, like, 
for 10 straight years or anything, but I had my good couple of years where I was a big Sesame Street fan. I was more of a Pee Wee Hermit. Pee Wee's Playhouse was my show that I always watched, but I did like Sesame Street a lot. And as a Midwestern kid growing up in suburban Ohio, this show was big for me because basically I never had heard anything good about city life from my family. I mean, I grew up with these you know, scared Midwesterners, basically, as many of our family, you know, probably are, the older folks. They grew up in the country or whatever, and the city was demonized all the time. And I never heard anything good about living in a city. I always heard it was, like, scary, and it was a terrible place, and it was cold and all this stuff. But this show really told you that living in a city was actually pretty kick-ass. And there's really nothing to be afraid of about, you know, living in a place where you've got neighbors all over. Nobody ever got shot in Sesame Street, but, you know, that's beside the point. The Sesame Street theme has been cranking for almost 50 years, and I honestly hope it goes for 50 more. Great television show, a great theme song, and the Sesame Street song, Can You Tell Me How to Get to Sesame Street, is my pick for this week's greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Hundred episodes and counting of Sesame Street. It's crazy, right? Now, last month uh, on the show in the in the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, I, I talked about the I Love Lucy theme song, and I think a lot of people. I, I got a lot of feedback from people saying that they enjoyed my showcase of the disco cover version of the I Love Lucy theme. So I figured I'd play a few bits of some of the many covers of the Sesame Street theme. Now, this song has been covered by, like, everyone. I mean, people have done it ironically. People have done it seriously. People have it just across all genres. This song has the, the Sesame Street theme song has been sampled by rappers. I got a call on my cellular phone from the counts. I don't like when they smoke on my weed, then they bounce. But actually, right down the block and back of me, nothing up against selling all the crack happily. That was Alchemist there. Song's also been remixed by 90s dance artists. That was a British group called the Smarties. The song's been played by jazz icon Maynard Ferguson. Maynard was blowing the double A, playing the Sesame Street theme song. I love it. And the song has also been blasted by punk rockers. That was a band called Fall Silent with their version of the Sesame Street theme. So, there you go. The Sesame Street theme song, Living On in Infamy. People will be covering that for as long as we live, I think. And and really, I wanted to bring up, I've had the Sesame Street theme on the list. I keep a running list, like, of the greatest theme songs. And I'm, I'm, I'm ticking them off as I go through. And Sesame Street theme has been on there since I first put the list together. I've just been waiting for a time to use it. And I thought this was a good time to use it because I wanted to real quickly mention and I don't. I've, I have not gotten political on this show before. I'm not really going to get too political here, but I do want to say one thing. We talk about television on this show, and that's why I don't really get political, because I'm not talking about TV news. I'm just talking about television and movies, really. And those are not particularly political mediums all the time. I mean, it's a lot of it is about escapism. But 
when the government wants to encroach on my great television love, that's when I have to make it political for a second. So President Trump has said that he wants to cut all funding to public broadcasting, including PBS and NPR. And that, like of all the things that he's he's wanted to do, that one just really made me embarrassed that people didn't think this was a big deal. People are like, well, whatever. It's user or it's it's viewer and listener supported anyways. Sure it is. But, I mean, that little token bit that the government gives is huge because NPR and PBS are notoriously, like, tight-fisted with their money. They do not, um, you know, they, they don't spend a lot on the things they bring us, which is impressive because the shows they bring us are so good. The percentage of tax money that goes to PBS is so ludicrously small that it makes no sense to want to cut, you know, public funding for this other than you just want to be a dick. That's the only, that's like the only good reason. It makes no sense. Just to put it in perspective, PBS takes about $1.35 every year from all of us. $1.35 from each one of us pays for PBS all year. And it's a station that you get for free. It's one of the over-the-air ones. It's not on cable, obviously. And they give us, like, just the shows that PBS does are some of the best on television. They give us shows like Nature, which I watch all the time. I love that show. American Experience, one of the best documentary shows there is. American Masters, again, one of the best documentary shows there is. Nova, Sesame Street, Sherlock from BBC, Austin City Limits, Music fans, I mean, that's an indispensable show. It's just the shows that PBS bring us, I think we they're easy to overlook because you might not talk about them all the time. But, man, um, I mean, these are great. These are like shows that I really legitimately treasure. So um, it, it's just it's sad to hear that PBS may be, you know, twisted out in the wind right now because uh, the, the current government does not value what they bring to the table. And I just uh, I don't get it. I, I think it would be a huge loss for all of us. And if you think that. PBS, losing PBS isn't a big deal, then um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you can listen to the show and think that because, you know, we talk about this show is a haven for people who love and gets very serious about television, about movies. And PBS is, you know, about as serious and about as lofty as it gets with uh, some of the shows they produce. So uh, I would just I would be I would be devastated if uh, if that went off the air. I don't think it's going to go off the air. I, I think even if the government pulled funding, the uh, fundraising efforts would be so great and people would be – it's like what's been going on with uh, Meals on Wheels and stuff like that. People are going to be cranking out even more donations because they you know, feel like they're in dire need of it. Um, but just I would, I would hate to see – because it's a symbolic gesture really for the government to pull out of that. So let's, let's just – let's keep PBS. I mean it's one of the truly great like treasures that we get on television. There's no commercials. There's no dumb shit. All the shows are thoughtful. They're all well done. It's not garbage entertainment. It's just good stuff. Really well produced, you know, shows and 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 documentaries and everything else. Just some great things come out of PBS, and it would be a, a great loss for us to lose. Man, Nature. I mean, that's one of my favorite shows of all time. I love that show. I'm addicted to it. All right, off politics. Let's uh, let, let's get back to movies and TV. Last month on the show, I talked about some movies that inspire me. And I told you guys how some of my very favorite movies do not inspire me. They intimidate me more than they inspire me because they make me feel inferior. Because I consider myself a creative person. I would like to create things. I watch movies, and, and a lot of times, foolishly, I'm thinking, maybe someday I could do that. I could maybe write the story that I've always wanted to write and, and sell it to somebody. 
And so when I watch a movie and it's a really, really good one that I just love, I feel like, oh, why would I even try? Because there's no way I'll ever live up to this. So it's a bad attitude to have, but it's just the truth, I think, when you're somebody who wants to be creative, who aspires to create something. When you hear a or see a piece of work that's amazing, you just want to shrink into your shell and go, well, forget it. I'll just leave it to them because there's no way I can come close to that. So I asked you guys, are there movies that inspire you or intimidate you? Um, and what's the fine line there? And I got a couple really good um, emails back from you guys. I want to start off with Glenn, who wrote me up. Uh, first off, I just want to read the email to you. He said, I'm writing to answer that question you posed this week about movies that inspire. I tend to agree with you that a lot of my favorite films are intimidating to me as a creative person. Piggybacking off of your point and being inspired by well-written characters in a film, I always find inspiration uh, in Pulp Fiction, specifically in all the scenes with Jules, the uh, Samuel L. Jackson character. He says Jules' story of redemption and feeling like he's finally drawn to do something really spoke to me when I was in my early 20s and I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. As a reporter, I'm constantly inspired by all the president's men. Until recently, I thought along with and loved that movie's theme that Americans, when presented with all the facts, would make the right choice and that journalism is America's greatest ally. Good point, Glenn. And uh, I'm, Glenn and I both uh, are reporters, and uh, I, I feel the same way about all the president's men. It is an inspiring movie to see that kind of work being done. That one's also intimidating, I think, though, um, as a reporter, because you're just like, oh, my God. I mean, the work that went into uncovering that and getting that story done, the luck that went into it, it's just that's one in a million kind of stuff there from uh, Woodward and Bernstein. So. Uh, and the same thing with a movie like Spotlight. And I, I hate to hear that you know you're jaded on it, but it's hard to understand. Or it, it would be hard to understand why you wouldn't be though. And yeah, Pulp Fiction does inspire me as far as writing good dialogue, and and I love those characters as well. Jules, I always liked as a character too. He's 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 great. I mean that that to me will always be Samuel L. Jackson's signature role, even though he's had a lot of good ones over his career. I just Jules Winfield to me will be the guy I always think of him as. So uh, thanks for the email, Glenn. He also suggested uh, the Hawaii Five-0 theme as uh, one of our greatest TV show theme songs of all time. That's also been on my short list since even before you emailed me, Glenn. So uh, believe me, I'm uh, I'm thinking about getting to it. I love the Hawaii Five-0 theme. Before I worked in television, I worked in radio, and uh, I hosted a sports talk show, and I used to do a segment at the end of the show talking about what games were going to be on TV later in the night. I called it channel surfing, like what sports are going to be on tonight, and I used to play the Hawaii Five-0 theme always underneath me. It's just a, it's a, it's a great song. you got to love that. Another email I got about the inspiration and intimidation came from my own co-host, Andy Sedlak. He, he felt so inspired, I guess, he had to write me an email. Andy said, a director's work has always intimidated me. Managing people, a script, actors, lighting, overseeing edits. Of course, you've got the suits watching, too. That's a workload that I don't see how anyone can handle. That's why I've always been impressed with people like Martin Scorsese, who juggle all of that bullshit and still maintain their vision and emerge the truly beautiful piece of art. Uh, Andy also says that great uh, acting inspires him. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, James Gandolfini, Marlon Brando, James Dean, Paul Newman. I like the always accessible Michael J. Fox, Dustin Hoffman, Sean Penn, and Humphrey Bogart. He says, I know I'm leaving a shitload out. I mean, you named a lot of the, the great ones there. Like I said also uh, last week, great acting always inspires me. James Dean specifically is one of those guys just inspires me. I would have loved to have been able to write for a guy like James Dean. I mean, what an honor that would be 
to be able to hand him a script. And I think Leonardo DiCaprio is a lot of the same way. Man, it's sad that like all the guys that you listed there are dead pretty much, um, except for DiCaprio, Hoffman, and Sean Penn. I mean, those guys, they're, they're all gone. James Gandolfini, Paul Newman. These guys are all gone, gone too soon. And, of course, Michael J. Fox is not gone either, but he's not really acting anymore, so it's sad. But um, And uh, Andy, I didn't know this, but he said at the bottom of his email that he always thought about being an actor. He uh, wanted to be an actor, thought about doing it, but he said in school, however, I thought the theater kids were weird, so I didn't go near it. Uh, that's interesting, man. That's uh, I never knew that in all the years I've known you. So. Andy Sedlak, who knows? It's never too late to, never too late to get into acting, man. You can always, uh, you can always still make it happen one of these days. Uh, I want to see you up on that big screen. So, uh, thanks for the emails. If you guys want to write me, you can always write me at theclintdavis at gmail dot com. And yeah, I just think you know when you're trying to be creative, it can be inspire, it can be inspiring or intimidating to watch other people's art. Okay, I got another question for you this week, though. I think this one's really going to make you think as well, and I want to hear some more responses from you guys. Can you separate art from the artist? That's a question that I asked in a piece I wrote for OverdueReview.com a few years ago, and it's a piece that I still think about today and I'm still proud of uh, to this day. I made a joke earlier in the show when I was talking about the electric company about Bill Cosby. Now, that was a guy that I absolutely loved. Growing up, I mean, I would probably say I worshipped Bill Cosby. I thought he was the perfect, like, human being, really. Here's a story about how much I loved Bill Cosby. In middle school English class, we were allowed to pick. We went to the library. We were allowed to pick any biography from the school library and write a book report. We had to read the biography, write a book report about it. I chose a book about Bill Cosby. Read that thing cover to cover. I ended up buying that book. I still have it on my shelf somewhere, I think, just because it was like maybe the first book I ever bought. And it's this biography about Bill Cosby. And I loved it. And I, like I said, I loved him. I had a VHS copy of Bill Cosby himself I used to watch all the time. I thought it was a little long but very funny. And I just I loved the guy. I loved his body of work. But it's honestly hard for me now to see the old work of Bill Cosby and laugh along with him. That's very hard for me now. In fact, I have not been able to do it since all the allegations about him being a serial rapist, came to light. But why is that such an issue with Cosby when, at the same time, I can easily watch The Naked Gun? I've I've gone back, I've watched the, the three Naked Gun movies plenty of times, and I always laugh along with O.J. Simpson. I think he's genuinely funny in those movies. I think he's great in those movies. Or I can go ahead and, and I go back and watch Chinatown all the time. I love Chinatown, one of my all-time favorite movies. Rosemary's Baby, again, one of my all-time favorite movies. I dearly love both of those films. I watch them. I probably watch both of those at least once a year. Roman Polanski directed both of them. Obviously, Roman Polanski is a noted asshole. He's a guy who, again, raped a girl. And he's been evading arrest for like 30 years, not coming back to America, just because uh, he, as soon as he comes back, he's going to be busted for rape. But I can watch those movies and still consider them my favorites and really not bat an eyelash about it. So I don't know what it is with the Cosby thing. Maybe it's because he's a comedian. I'm not sure. Maybe it's because his characters were always so innocent and so fatherly that the idea of him preying on someone and preying on so many women for so long is just too disgusting, I think, to really think about when I see him you know, sitting there with the girls on the Cosby show and being this father figure to everyone and having so much wisdom, I I think it really just like personally hurt me uh, because he was someone I looked up to so much. 
like I said, I wrote a piece at Overdue Review a few years ago asking that question. Can you separate art from the artist? And the reason I wrote it when I wrote it was because I was linking it to the recent death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Phil Hoffman had died like a month before I wrote that piece. And it turned out when Philip Seymour Hoffman died that he was this big-time heroin addict, right? And that made me look at him a little differently than I had. I never thought of him as someone who had drug problems because I had never heard about that, never heard he was addicted to drugs, especially something as serious and as dirty as heroin. But it turned out that was what killed him. But isn't it kind of sad that we almost expect our best artists to be drug addicts or people at least who live dangerously? It's like we're never surprised when a famous artist dies young of a drug overdose, car crash, something like that. We're never surprised by that. And that's to me, is a sad thing. Why do we expect that from, from those people? And these are people we care about. These are people that we genuinely admire. And if they need help, then why are we so apathetic to their, ish, to their problems? Just because they're famous and rich, they shouldn't have problems, I guess. But let's, let's, let's forget about Cosby. Let's forget about O.J., Philip Seymour Hoffman. Let's forget about Roman Polanski, all those guys for a minute. The guy that I admire most but has a very spotty personal reputation, is Woody Allen. And I wrote about him in that piece. Woody Allen's legitimately one of probably my five favorite writers and directors in the history of cinema. I think the guy is a genius. Nearly every movie he made from the beginning of the 1970s through the 1990s is virtually flawless in my mind. I worship those films. But allegations of him molesting his own children... And the obvious fact that he married his own teenage stepdaughter, which he's still married to her today, makes makes it a little difficult to defend Woody Allen. Because that's, I mean, those are character flaws, deep character flaws. But do I have to defend and admire Woody Allen personally to love his work? I, that's the question I'm getting at here. If I want to watch Crimes and Misdemeanors, which I just reviewed the other day at OverdueReview.com, if you want to read my thoughts on that film. If I want to watch Radio Days or Zelig or, you know, whatever, Annie Hall, Manhattan, and love those films and talk about how great those films are, do I have to personally defend Woody Allen as well? If I watch his films and buy his DVDs, which is putting money in his pocket, am I doing something wrong by supporting the guy? I think it's a tough, it's a really tough question. Do we have this obligation to only support the artists who's, personal lives we agree with? I don't know. I've thought about that many times with people who are in my own family in a different way because I've and, and people that I know who I've heard bash on like, you know, gay marriage and you know, they they think that gay people shouldn't have the right to be married and things like that. But then at the same time they'll sing Elton John, George Michael songs. I mean, clearly they like look up to these gay people. And it's like, do you realize? I mean, you're kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth here. I don't get it. It's like that great scene in Do the Right Thing, the Spike Lee movie, when the racist Italian pizzeria worker, played by uh, John Chichuro, is confronted on the fact that all the guys he looks up to are black guys. Tina, who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favorite rock star? Prince. You're a Prince Ross. Bruce. Prince. Bruce. You know, all you ever talk about is nigga this and nigga that. And all your favorite people are so-called niggas. It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince are not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm, I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's, 
It's different. It's different. Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. He looks up to all these guys, and they're black, but he seems to hate black people. So what sense does that make? I don't know. That's probably a different question. But are there any artists that you have that dilemma with? People that you just, you personally, you don't like them, but you love the stuff they do. And do you feel like that's, is that a conflict for you? Do you just not care? I mean, does it really, does it matter? Do you not think of these as real people and you just take the art at face value and that's it? It doesn't have to be a criminal. Maybe it's just a singer who's like been married 10 times or has 20 kids that they never see. Or maybe it's somebody that reflects this shallow lifestyle, but you happen to like their art. Email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. I'd love to hear if you have any of those issues with any artists out there. Are there people that you just don't like? A guy who it's really hard for me, and I hate this, is Gary Oldman. I love Gary Oldman. I've told you many times. I think he's the greatest actor in movie history. I, I'm not, there's no hyperbole there. I think he's the best actor ever in movies. He's my favorite actor. But the guy's like a race. He's said he's like said the n word in interviews. He has said sexist, homophobic stuff. He's like this crazy, really conservative guy, which really bums me out because it's like God, I I love this guy. I don't want to hear him say dumb shit like that because I want to also like him. So I don't know. It's 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 a tough thing, but I still will again consider him because you got to just respect the way the guy acts. You got to respect the way that Woody Allen writes. You got to respect the way Roman Polanski puts a film together because. Hardly, you know, anyone does it better than him. So I don't know. It's it's tough. It's tough. Tough question. So I'm, I'm asking you some hard stuff this week. Really, I'm leaving you with something to think about. So uh, anyways, write me again at theclintdavis at gmail.com. Tell me about any of those artists that, you know, you have a hard time supporting or defending maybe, but you do. You really are a fan of theirs. All right. I'm going to go ahead and toss things over to Andy, and we'll see what he's got coming uh, through the pipeline, I'm sure. Uh, a, a nice send off to Chuck Berry because, like I said, I mean, that was a, and look at Chuck Berry. That was a guy who filmed women using the bathroom at restaurants that he owned. Yeah. So, once again, you hear the the guy has been eulogized as a saint, but he was. I mean, he had a pretty dirty secret in his past that got out. So, I don't know, man. There's hardly anybody clean out there to really <laughs> to really look up to. It's like Tom Hanks is about it, man. Just a guy that you can really like. You can like his work, and, and there's nothing really bad to say about him. All right, but I'm going to take a break. Take it away, uh, Mr. Sedlak. I'll be back in just a few minutes. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. George Washington died, people all across the country wore black. They were in mourning, uh, so they dressed like it. History remembers that thousands of people did this, a significant statement from the country at the time. 
Memorial services were held in every major city. It was a global tragedy. In France, Napoleon ordered a 10-day mourning period to observe the loss of George Washington. In my opinion, the same reaction would be appropriate in light of the loss of Chuck Berry. Because Chuck Berry is the father of my country. My name is Andy Sedlak, the music editor over at OverdueReview.com. You know, it's a funny thing. When I got into music, I started actually at the beginning. I'm not sure how many people uh, do that. When I was seven or eight years old, I loved 50s music. I remember getting a Chuck Berry CD for Christmas in my stocking one year. And for years, uh, Chuck's music stayed very, very close to me. I used to play it each night in my room when I... uh, drifted off to sleep, or I tried to drift off to sleep. I always, I've always had trouble sleeping. Uh, so so I would listen to uh, Mr. Chuck Berry's golden hits over and over and over again. Downbound Train, Too Much Monkey Business, School Days, Johnny Be Good, Maybelline, Havana Moon, I know them all. I had a radio show in college. It's the probably the only thing in my life that I've never gotten tired of doing. And I used to play Chuck's music a lot, especially this one. You know, I'm almost grown. Yeah, and I'm doing all right in school. They ain't said I broke no rules. I ain't never been in Dutch. I don't browse around too much. Don't bother me, leave me alone. That's almost grown. Chuck died on uh, March 18th. I know that because I was in Chicago at the time, and my wife and I saw Hamilton that night. I thought for sure, I mean, I thought for sure they would dedicate the performance that evening to Chuck. Hip-hop wouldn't have been possible without him. Hell, nothing would have been possible without him. But they didn't. Chuck was 90 years old. If a monument in our nation's capital marks George Washington's legacy, then Chuck has a similar monument in my mind. Because Chuck Berry is the father of my country. 16 top 40 hits between the 1950s and 1970s. Teenagers, girls, cars. That's the imagery, right? Ah, but no. Those were merely the tangible elements of his writing they were just the actors in the story he was telling in reality i always felt his music was about finding the soul in everyday life the soul in taking chances the soul in bouncing back he put his finger on the uh, central element of soul music by way of rock and roll chuck was born in 1926 to a family of six when he was 18 he stole a car at gunpoint released from jail on his 21st birthday now this is an incredible story by the age of 22 He was married with a child and working in a factory. Could be why the working man is such a central figure in so many of his songs. He bought a home, settled into a middle-class lifestyle, but everything changed, as the story goes, when he met Muddy Waters, who pointed him to uh, Leonard Chess over at Chess Records. And boom, Maybelline came first. you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You just started doing the things you used to do. 
Well, in July of 1955, here's Chuck talking about writing that song. Where'd you get the name Maybelline? Uh, there was a cow in a poem in the third grade named Maybelline. I was trying to think of a novel name. It's a Maybelline, the cow. Yeah, that was in our school. <laughs> we had a cow named Maybelline. When you write a song, think about what the market is uh, trying to make a hit that's... yes that comes in it yeah i have to i have to think commercially because uh, if not uh it's not fair to the record company it's not fair to my livelihood and uh I, so i think commercially i think about what the public would want you know getting still if it's not within the feeling that i have to deliver it does it, it'll never be heard and maybelline undoubtedly changed his life i was making 94 dollars a week at uh, assembly plant i had no idea when i met my first job i came to new york here and uh, was with an agency and they said well this song will probably last you two years you could run to two years and working 40 months out of the year at 50 dollars a night and the Lord had answered my blessings, you know, because from $74 a week, uh, $94 a week to $50,000 a night, pretty good jump. Maybelline was released almost a full year to the day, to the day after Elvis Presley's That's All Right. And you can kind of hear where Barry added muscle to the rock rhythm that was rapidly growing up. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just Maybelline was released both before Jerry Lee Lewis. We ain't faking. Oh, and Little Richard. Tutti Fruity didn't come out until after Maybelline. That's how early, that's how early in the timeline this song hits. When I first heard this, for me there was a kind of separation in your version of rock and roll and everybody else's. It was like, where did this guy ever hear of Beethoven and Tchaikovsky, the lyrics that you were using and everything? Seeing that there was this kind of sophistication in them in regard. It wasn't Bebopalula and Wapapaluma was lyrics going by, like bang, flying by. It wasn't somebody who was just trying to get to the end of the song. It was somebody who was actually, each line was written out. Trying to tell a story, Robbie. Yeah. Really. It came from actually poetry. Poetry portraits a scene or a story, and uh, that's where my uh, lyrics uh, would originate from. Some thought that... Uh, uh, from it came a story and then proceeded with um, music or some riff that uh, reminded me of uh, some uh, situation that brought about a story. You know, mm -hmm. it come from music or come from lyrics. And without taking anything away from Little Richard or Jerry Lee and even Elvis, the difference with Barry was that he wrote his own songs. You know what? I mean, it's... It's, it's tough to imagine just how radical that was in the 1950s. Poetry, you knew about poetry. You were into poetry. Very much so. Really? Very much so. Because that's kind of unusual when, in that period, that rebel period and everything. I mean, poetry and sissies kind of went together. So it was a, a, a rebel against a rebel. I, I don't know. Beatniks were into poetry a lot. I used to see... That's uh, true. But there really were. There were two camps, writers 
and performers. Chuck Berry was ahead of his time. Buddy Holly, too. And until the Beatles came along and changed it for good, they were the exception that proved the rule. Roll over Beethoven, still one of the funniest songs ever written. Funny because it was so just, uh, pardon the expression, cocksure and <laughs> school days. Sweet little 16 rock and roll music and, well, you know what followed. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans, way back up in the woods among the evergreens. There stood a log cabin made of earth and wood, where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good, who never ever learned to read or write so well, but he could play a guitar just like a ring in a bell. Go, 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 Johnny, go, 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 Johnny, go, 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 Johnny, go, 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 Johnny, go, go, Johnny, be good. And I would always hate when when people would rip off the Chuck Berry riff, and a lot of artists did it. They would try to, you know, that just that signature riff, and they would try to. Ape it. It happened all the time. Here's the Beach Boys. If everybody had an ocean across the USA. And here's Jan and Dean. Chuck would sometimes go for long periods of time uh, without a regular backing band. Um, it might be the Steve Miller band one night, uh, and a bunch of just local guys on another night. Uh, and he would always want to be paid before the gig. Here he is with Johnny Carson in 1987. Somebody told me you usually, when you perform, insist on getting paid cash up front. True. Well, well not cash, but things as good as cash, like cashier's checks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, I had a lot of problems waiting two and a half hours for them to count monies, and then they make mistakes, so up front, and then a lot of people, a lot of the promoters add taxes from mm-hmm. the government, they're not supposed to, so up front is better. I know a lot of people who go on tour run in that same problem. You go in and you, it takes them a while before they get all the, the house count, and mm-hmm. sometimes the performers have been stiffed. Have you ever been ripped off? <laughs> <laughs> no names, no, no names, please. More ways than one. Yeah. <laughs> Chuck had a lot of famous admirers. One of the most ardent supporters was Keith Richards, who ended up with kind of like a brotherly-like relationship with Chuck Berry. But then I I also heard the story, I don't know if this is true or not, did he he punch you in the face once? Yes, he did. He did, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) With friends like that, yeah. You can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. Why would would Chuck Berry punch Keith Richards? I was in a dressing room, he was doing a gig, Uh, he went off to collect the money, I think. And, That's uh, what it always he, is. He was a tight wad, and bless you, Chuck. But uh, he, he, and his guitar was laid out in his case, and I went, "Ah, oh, come on, Keith, you know, just a touch." You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta play a little bit, yeah, right? Yeah, just let me give it a, an E chord. Or, <laughs> uh, he walks in and goes, "Nobody touches my guitar." Boom. Uh, that's one of Chuck's biggest hits, baby. <laughs> <laughs> 
a showman literally until the day he died. He played different shows leading up to his 90th year, unbeknownst to anyone outside of a tight circle of family and friends. Chuck was recording new music. Let me say that again. Chuck Berry, architect of rock and roll music in the 1950s, was getting ready to release new music in 2017. His last album came out at the end of the 1970s, and it was so-so. This time around, he teamed up with who else? Tom Morello. And we know what he adds, and we may roll our eyes at that, but this time he, he really did a nice job of working around Chuck, which was wise. The first single was released two days after his death. It's called Big Boys. When I was just a little boy like you, I wanted to do things the big boys do. Wherever they went, you knew they wouldn't let me go, and I got suspicious and I wanted to know. The new album will be called, just straight up, just going to call it Chuck. It'll come out later this year. Hey, give, me, give me some more of that song. Give me some more Big Boys. All of the big girls with that too. When I ask them what's happening, nobody knew. But when I found out where, what, when, and why, I didn't let a single week pass by. Till the school dance when I first met you. And I learned to party like the big boys do. Chuck Berry is the father of my country. As I get older, what strikes me the most about that first era of rock and roll is just how reckless it was. It still feels dangerous in the best possible way. I mean, this is this is what's on the radio now. Coming now, follow my lead. I may be crazy, don't mind me. Say, boy, let's not talk too much. Grab on my waist and put that body on. And that's no disrespect to Ed Sheeran. I, you know, I kind of like him, but, but that music feels like it knows its place. songs didn't even consider their place they literally did not fit into a genre the country was knee deep into the cold war kids were practicing air raid drills by hiding under their freaking desks and these guys came along from the other side of the tracks and convinced people to dance and to party that's radical maybe not radical it's liberating it really was. I mean, that's it was liberating. Rock and roll would, would get heavier, that's for sure. But was it ever as beautifully reckless as in those early days? You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the answer is no. It may have been wilder, 
but it wasn't as beautifully reckless. When metal started with bands like Black Sabbath, what they really did was was uh, paint the blues with, with like a, a darker shade. And as great and as prolific as this music would be, it was never as liberating as the rock music of the 1950s. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye, yes, that'll be the day when you make me cry, you say you go. But what's funny is that all of this, that era ended after about four years. Four years and it was over. Presley went into the Army in 1958. That's four years after That's All Right came out. Chuck Berry was accused of violating the Mann Act in 1959. He went to jail. That was four years after Maybelline came out. You know the story with Jerry Lee and his cousin. Actually, it was his, uh, his first cousin once removed. But anyway, that went down in 1958. He was gone. Little Richard found God, and Buddy Holly died in 1959. By 1960, all these dudes were literally all gone from the music scene. Fats Domino, his hits dried up. Ray Charles had a top 40 hit in 1959. I looked it up. That song was on Moving On. But then his career dried up. Carl Perkins, not much going on there in the 1960s. But when you go back to that, that first era, it still feels beautifully Beautifully reckless, still feels dangerous. And it's still fun. And even if it doesn't scare anyone anymore, that's fine, because it was never built on shock value alone. It was built on liberation. And that's what sustains. Okay, now, here are five songs to add to our uh, evolving Stream Police playlist. You can listen to the complete playlist over on Spotify. And these are all going to be Chuck Berry songs today. First, it is Havana Moon. Me all alone, me openly wrong, is long to wait for bold to come. American girl, come back to me. We'll sail away across the sea. We'll dock in New York, the buildings high. We find a home up in the sky. Havana Moon Havana Moon Then Johnny Be Good Go Johnny go 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 Johnny go 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 Johnny go 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 Johnny go go Johnny Be Third, 30 days. I'm going to give you 30 days to get back home. I done call up a gypsy woman on a telephone. I'm going to send out a worldwide hoodoo. That'll be the very thing that'll suit you. I'm going to see that you'll be back home. Fourth, 
From his last studio record for almost 40 years, it's I Need You, Baby. Please listen, baby. Try and understand. Sure woman needs man. I need you, baby. I just wanted you then. But I'm in love with you now. I reviewed that album for Overdue and, and, and gave it just a real mediocre rating. I felt like he didn't really push himself. But anyway, the last song I'll recommend is a, a, a truly, it's a, just a weird song for, for Barry. It's uh, kind of creepy. It's called Downbound Train. The parlor was filled with lava beer. The devil himself was an engineer. The passengers were most a motley crew. Some were foreigners and others he knew. Rich men in broadcloth beds and rags. Handsome young ladies in wicked old hags. All right. I'm going to toss it back to Clint once again. This has turned into the podcast of death, <laughs> but but you know these are important people, important to us. <laughs> Clint, what you got? And thank you very much, Andy. Always uh, always good to hear from you here in my inbox or on the stream, police or whatever, man. It's, it's good to be with you. Uh, so once again, I urge you to go over to OverdueReview.com. That's where Andy and I write about movies, about music, and about television. Mostly about movies and music up there. This show I really treat as like my television. This is where most of the television stuff comes in. I review a lot of shows on here. I don't like to write about shows so much. because I think it's hard to review TV shows. It's like, do you do it episode by episode? Do you do it season by season? Or do you do the whole series? I'm kind of under the mind that you do the whole series. I think it's hard to break down shows episode by episode because it's just not really an accurate way to reveal or to review, I should say, how good a show is because, you know, there's always good episodes and bad episodes, most of the time anyways. You know, I know Andy talked about Chuck Berry dying, but I got to stay on the obit train for just a couple more minutes. Just bear with me because there were two deaths in the last couple weeks that really bummed me out. All right, and I want to touch on those real quick with you here. A couple deaths for you. First off, 87-year-old Chuck Barris. Now, that's confusing, I know, because Chuck Berry, Chuck Barris, both of them died in, like, the same week, which is really weird, right? Chuck Berry and Chuck Barris both died. Two very different guys, both badasses, though. So people throw the word legendary around a lot, and they throw it around on stuff that it has no business being thrown around on. But in television circles and in people who love 70s television, Chuck Barris fits the bill of being called legendary and mysterious. True man of mystery, this guy. Chuck Barris created a handful of the best game shows of the 1970s. This is the guy that created the newlywed game, the dating game. Who doesn't love both of those shows? He created the gong show. I mean, that's legendary television right there. I mean, that was like the show that, that was like the first, you know, TV talent show kind of thing and just full of oddball weirdos. You never knew what was going to come. I mean, it was like the, truly the original America's Got Talent, but really without the glitz and glamour. I mean, it looked like it was made for about $5 in a basement somewhere. And Chuck Barris hosted the gong show as well. That was what most people knew him from. But in addition to creating those three shows, 
Chuck Barris wrote the 1962 hit record Palisades Park, which is actually a pretty rockin' tune. But the songwriting and the game shows are only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Chuck Barris truly being a legend, as I said before. In 1984, this guy wrote his autobiography called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. And in the book, he claimed that he worked for the CIA for 20 years as an assassin. So he had he was well known as this game show magnate, songwriter, all this stuff, all around just like entertainer and just a cool just a cool guy, really. But then in his his autobiography he says I've been killing people for the CIA for 20 years. Like, the way he puts it is he was working on the gong show, and then, like, on weekends, he would jet set off to some, you know, country in Europe, and he would do a hit mission for the CIA, and then he would come back and he would host a show again and never told anybody about this. Now, the CIA has vehemently denied that he ever worked for them. But Barris, like, was dead serious about it, totally kept it up for the rest of his life, didn't act like this was a joke at all. I mean, this was like Andy Kaufman-esque performance art if this was a joke. This was a joke that lasted for like 30 years. But it's just amazing stuff. And if you've never seen the movie Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, the the book was turned into a movie by George Clooney. It was the first movie George Clooney ever directed. His directorial debut, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, starring Sam Rockwell as Chuck Barris. It's a really cool movie. And uh, Clooney's in it a little bit. He plays one of the CIA guys. Um but it just it's a it's a really cool just weird movie and i love the fact you see that's why i like george clooney because he'll do weird projects like that clooney is not one of those hollywood guys who has a stick up his ass this guy just knows good stuff and the fact that he would direct confessions of a dangerous mind into a film is just amazing to me i love it so chuck barris I'll miss him. If you get a chance, seek that movie out. It's a really good one. I've got it on my DVD shelf. I don't think it's streaming anywhere right now, but look it up. Check it out. You can probably find it for like $2 at Half Price Books. Find it at your local library for free and give it a watch. And get to know Chuck Barris because this guy was awesome, and he's dead now, so it's sad, man. 87 years old, Chuck Barris gone too soon. But for as sad as I was about Chuck Barris dying, I was honestly devastated to hear that Robert Osborne passed away at the age of 84. Now, if you are a movie fan, which I'm guessing you are since you listen to this program, or if you're a television fan, you got to know Robert Osborne. He was the guy who hosted Turner Classic. Like, he was Turner Classic Movies. He wasn't the host of Turner Classic Movies. He was the, he was the channel for as far as much as I'm concerned. Truly one of the easiest hosts and most knowledgeable TV hosts of our time. The guy just had, like, this very easy personality about him. He always made watching TCM such a joy. I mean, honestly, he made that channel so comforting to flip on and just leave it for hours. Whenever I'd watch TCM, that's what I would do. I'd put it on, and I'd leave it on for like six hours, just three movies, just leave them running. And it was because of Robert Osborne. I looked forward to the commercial breaks so I could hear his little tidbits of information about the movies. The guy just knew his shit. Right. I mean, he knew movies almost better than anybody. And he was always able to tell you something that you didn't know about the film that you were about to see or the one that you had just watched. He was one of those rare guys also that I would have liked to have had dinner with. You know how people will ask that question, like, who would you like to have dinner with? Robert Osborne is one of the few that, you know, entertainment guys that I think I would actually want to sit down, 
have a conversation with, have dinner with, and just talk to him about movies. I just want to know what his favorites were. What what made a film great to him? What were some of like the guilty pleasure movies that he liked to watch? Just a cool guy, man. I, I loved Robert Osborne. He taught me a lot about movies, and you know about what it's what it takes to be a good host. So I used to look so forward to those introductions that he would give before the movies on TCM. Here's one of them that I pulled from the internet that I just I thought was a great indication of how just again how easy a host and how informative a host Robert Osborne was. Just listen to him talk about his experience with one of my favorite movies. This next one was made in the 1970s by director Stanley Kubrick. The movie is A Clockwork Orange from 1971. And I must say my first experience with his movie was when it was shown at a preview in Hollywood just before Christmas of that year. One of the early moments in the film has Malcolm McDowell merrily imitating Gene Kelly singing in the rain while McDowell merrily pulverizes an elderly tramp. Well, that did it for me. It's not what I wanted to see when I was trying to get in the Christmas mode that December, so I left. But the film got great reviews when it opened and became very much an event movie for its time. Kubrick, of course, much respected at that time and heralded. When I finally did see this film, I was mesmerized by it. And to me, that's one of the great things about movies. The movie doesn't change, but we do. Also, there's something in the world of movies for everyone. And for those who love this movie, and many people do, and for those who have never seen it, we bring it to you now. Also, the idea of Turner Classic Movies showing A Clockwork Orange just cracks me up because the movie had to be probably a half hour long edited down for what they could actually show on television. That had to be such a waste to watch on TCM, to be honest. But Robert Osborne was a pro, consummate pro. He will be greatly missed on TV, and there is no replacement for him. Nobody could replace him. Robert Osborne, dead at 84. I'll greatly miss him. A gentleman and a scholar, he seemed like, man, and a very private guy, too. Never heard much about him. I didn't know that he was gay, actually, uh, until he died. It was uh, the man that he had a relationship with for 20 years, who was a, a Broadway producer, Broadway director, came out and announced that Osborne had died. So I did not know that until, you know, he was dead. And, again, this guy was 84 years old. He was a staple on television for 30 years. And I didn't know much about him personally. Just knew he was a genius when it came to movies. So I love that guy. Just great guy. Very cool. Okay, and speaking of movies, in theaters right now, I saw a couple of them that are out there for you. I just want to mention them real quick. Kong, Skull Island, if you love monster movies, uh, which I, I wouldn't call myself one of the biggest monster movie fans, but if you do like them, I think you'll really dig this latest edition of King Kong. Um, I liked it much more than the Peter Jackson King Kong from 2005. That one, to me, was just so long, boring, cheesy. Uh, the, the Skull Island stuff I thought was the best part of the movie. In that one, so this is cool because the whole movie is set on Skull Island. So it's just Kong being a badass fighting like these other huge monsters that are on Skull Island as these, uh, you know, dumbass people and scientists try to come in and invade the island and investigate, you know, Kong and all the other creatures that live on this anomalous island in the South Pacific. So uh, it, it's uh, it's got a really good soundtrack, a little bit cliche soundtrack set in Vietnam era so it's you know it's like all this great vietnam era rock music classic rock music cranked to full volume if you're going to see it see it on the biggest screen you can find because the movie looks really good that to me was the best part of the whole movie it's like a visual feast and king kong looks awesome in this movie this is the best king kong has ever looked and i guess that it's that should be the case 
since the further we get along, the better he should look. But he looked immaculate, I, and he looked scary and awesome. And Kong is actually like the hero of this movie, which is really cool. And it's also had a good cast. Tom Hiddleston, um, who I didn't totally buy as like this big rebel badass, but still, you know, he's in it. Brie Larson, surprisingly, is in it. She's doing a lot of action movies lately now after she got out of the room. Um, and you got John C. Riley in this movie, Samuel L. Jackson. It's it's a really John Goodman. It's a really strong cast. Corey Hawkins is in it. So uh, Kong Skull Island. I, I recommend it if you want a little escapism. You want something fun to watch on a massive screen in 3D. Uh, give it a watch. But another movie that I saw that I liked a little bit more recently is Life, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds. Um, and the, the two guys are part of the crew on board the International Space Station, and they're orbiting Earth in the International Space Station. They have discovered the first alien life form, the first life form from Mars. It's like this single-cell organism they pick up in a soil sample, and they're investigating in their lab, and, of course, the alien inevitably starts evolving at too rapid a pace, gets out of their control, and eventually gets loose on the ship and starts killing them one by one. <laughs> Nothing in that lab can malfunction. It's on me. Yeah, it's on you. You know, I know at least five guys back home who can do my job. Nobody can do yours except you. We don't know what it is. And you're in there and you're playing around with it like it's your buddy. I'm your buddy. This will never be a controlled experiment. So let's all agree we made our first and last mistake. It's It sounds a lot like Ridley Scott's Alien, and it definitely takes cues from that movie. Um, but I think this movie's a little bit more, it's a lot more extreme than Alien was. It's not as good as Alien, but, you know, what is? I mean, that's a perfect film. So it's, it's unfair to compare anything to Alien. But this movie's terrifying. Really, really scary stuff. I, I was I was, like, on the edge of my seat for a lot of life. And uh, I heard people just audibly, like, groaning, screaming in the theater. So that's always a good sign when you're watching a horror movie. Uh, the, the thing that I'm going to say, though, about life, if you're looking for a feel-good movie, steer very clear of this film. This is about the, this is like the definition of a feel-bad movie, to be honest with you. And no one's going to put that on a poster. The feel-bad movie of the year, Life. And with that name, I don't really like that title because to me, life, when I think of that movie, I always think of the Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence movie, which I absolutely love. But still, that's the title we're given, so whatever. But this is a pretty good movie. But it's easily one of the grimmest movies I have ever seen. I mean, I was impressed with how grim they made this film. It was co-written by the guys who wrote Deadpool, so they've been working with Ryan Reynolds a lot lately. They also co-wrote Zombieland, which I never saw, but I heard you know a lot of good things about um, but this movie's not really funny. It's not funny like those two are supposed to be. This one is very serious and, like I said, very grim. I mean, I was leaving that theater and I'm like, man, I haven't seen very many movies that were more grim than this film. The one that immediately pops into my head whenever I think of like the darkest movies I've ever seen, and I'm, darkest is even the right word. I'm just gonna I'm gonna say with, stick with what I was saying. The grimmest movie, just grim, just death all over. Nothing to good to feel good about. The Mist is the movie I always think about as like the grimmest movie I've ever seen. Did you ever see that one? The Stephen King adaptation. Um, it, it came out like 2011, something like that, 2010. And 
it was directed by Frank Darabont, the guy who did the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile. He stuck with Stephen King and he did The Mist. And Darabont had enough power at that point to where he was able to change the ending of Stephen King's original story, gave it his own ending. King thought that was fine. And my God, it is the grimmest ending to ever be included in any movie. And I will stand by that. And I think anyone who's ever seen that movie will stand by the fact that the ending to The Mist is the grimmest thing probably ever put to film. That ending was so dark that Darabont had to threaten to quit for the studio to agree to let him do that as a movie, which is <laughs> amazing to me that a big studio, I think that this was like Paramount or something, I mean, this was a big studio, that would put a movie out that it was this grim, so stark. So, what's the grimmest movie you've ever seen? I mean, is it The Mist? Is it? Did you see Life? Do you agree with what I'm talking about here? I wonder what the grimmest movie you ever saw was. What's the movie that just left you with zero hope? as you were walking out of the theater, the kind of movie that you took a date to thinking that it was going to be one thing and you left with no chance at all of having the date end in sex. It was just the date was over right then. Your dreams of sex were killed right at the end of this movie because it was so grim. Who could go from that point to going on and and having a nice night? So what are the movies that just completely bummed you out? That's what I want to know. Davis at gmail.com is a way to hit me. Davis at gmail.com. Life, easily one of the grimmest movies I have ever seen. And I give the filmmakers a lot of credit for going uh, full tilt, man. They didn't hold anything back. They were unflinching, just punishing the crew and punishing their audience during this movie. So Life is in theaters now. Again, it stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds. Also, Rebecca Ferguson, who is really good, man. She was in... Uh, the BBC show The White Queen, and uh, she was also in the latest Mission Impossible movie, Rogue Nation. She played, like, the love interest in this movie. You'll remember her in that yellow dress with that awesome gun when she stuck her leg up there and had to pick that guy off at the opera house. Just really cool. That's a, that, was a, that was a great image. So uh, she was very good in this movie as well. The whole cast was really good. It's a small cast. Um, small cast and a claustrophobic movie, but definitely a terrifying film. Um, All right, so I want to end the show like I usually do with a couple movies that are now streaming that you may not have seen. And since I'm talking about grim movies, I want to keep it grim. And I want to give you recommendations of two movies that are very dark that are right now streaming. On Netflix, first off, Frailty from 2002. This, to me, is the best work that Bill Paxton did in his entire career. And that's another guy who died since the last time we spoke that really bummed me out. Bill Paxton gone way too soon. You felt like he was a guy that definitely had a lot left in the tank. And I always liked him, man. I never walked away from a movie with Bill Paxton in it going, you know, he just he, it wasn't very good. Like, he was always just really steady in everything that he was ever in. Um, and Frailty, to me, is the best work of his career. He directed this movie. It was the first movie he ever directed. And, man, he had a master's touch on doing this film. It starred Bill Paxton and Matthew McConaughey. And it was about this father, played by Paxton, who uh, took his son out with him. And he was a, he was a serial killer. And he trained his son to be a serial killer with him. But he taught his kid that they were doing the Lord's work. And that if they put their hands on someone and felt that they were a demon, that they had God's permission to kill them. And this was what, how he indoctrinated his kids into religion and everything else. Um, and it's just it's a really dark movie and a really great movie. It's got a very good twist ending. One of those twist endings that just kind of kicks you in the stomach uh, when it's over. So Frailty right now is on Netflix, and I really recommend uh, that one. Also on Amazon right now, another pretty grim movie, The Firm 
from 1993. This was a uh, John Grissom uh, book, and it was directed by the great, the late great Sidney Pollock. Man, I love Sidney Pollock. Uh, starring Tom Cruise, Sidney Pollock's actually in it as well. Um, it's a really, really good cast in this movie. Also, um, it's just like great actor after great actor. Gene Hackman's in it, um, and it's a really grim movie. It's it's probably John Grisham's best story, like just as an actual story, because it feels like an episode of The Twilight Zone, and it's about this hotshot young lawyer who's just graduated, top of his class, I think like Harvard Law or something like that, played by Tom Cruise, who gets an invitation to work for this tight knit. Uh, but successful firm in Memphis, Tennessee, and he gets you know an offer to go there and be a eventually be a partner at this firm, and he starts to look into it and realize that this firm is really like a weird cult, and that he probably does not want to join this, but it's too late. He's he's been sucked in already. So, and he starts to undercover you know some of the secrets as to why this uh, why this firm is so weird and creepy, and uh, why they are like a cult. So uh, that one is on Amazon right now. If you like thrillers and if you like legal film, it's a it's an interesting legal film because it really doesn't have any courtroom scenes in it. It's just like strictly about this one lawyer and him trying to get away from this this firm and he's investigating you know what's going on or is he just paranoid and is it all in his head. I've actually reviewed that one at overduereview.com if you want to read my full thoughts on it, but it is right now on Amazon. Totally recommend that. So again on Netflix you got Frailty and on Amazon The Firm you want to keep things dark this month as it's turning into spring all right that's going to do it for this edition of the stream police thank you very much for tuning in my friend i'll talk to you next time from somewhere in cincinnati i'm not sure where i'll be recording it but i'll let you know hopefully i'll be able to bring my stogie along with me thank you very much andy sedlak for uh checking in as well always great to hear from you my friend write me at the clint davis at gmail.com write andy at andy or, i'm sorry at sedlak journal at gmail.com and you can also follow us on Twitter at Overdue underscore Review. We appreciate it very much. Talk to you next time. Until then, stream on, my friend. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.